Hi, everyone. Welcome to the November 18th ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I'm Alicia Halliday, and this week we're going to be recognizing Epilepsy Awareness Month, which is November. This week's podcast is also going to highlight why animal models of autism are so important. While it's November and we're giving thanks, I also want to thank Stephen Pressman for allowing us to use this podcast music. He's a composer and a pianist and basically an amazing autism dad. So ever wonder why animal models are so important? Well, because they tell scientists things that could not be studied by just simply observing people with autism. For example, if scientists wanted to know about the effects of a drug on a certain cell type in the brain, they need to get to that cell in the brain right after a drug has been administered. That's an animal model study. Here's another example. What role does an environmental exposure have at different doses And does genetic background have anything to do with the response? This is an especially important question that should be answered by studying people with autism, but unfortunately not enough people have participated in research studies to make this sort of experiment happen. So scientists turn to animal models. Animal models can also help direct what type of research should be done in humans. Like, is there a genetically susceptible subtype? Is there a rare exposure? Is there an effect of a drug in older people not seen in younger people? All of these things help not just understand the causes of autism, but help understand autism in general and make predictions about possible features and symptoms of autism across the lifespan. Now, we know people with autism, I mean, come on, people in general are all different genetically. Humans do share 99.9% of our DNA, but that 0.1% is what makes us different. Different heights, different metabolisms, different eye colors, different response to environmental factors, different psychiatric outcomes. Seizures are one medical comorbidity in people with autism that has a genetic component. Rare variants of genes associated with things like DUP15Q syndrome, phelan McDermid syndrome, and SCN2A, all autism risk genes also cause seizures. But that's about all of what we know, and many people suffer from epilepsy without one of these rare variants, and the type of seizure and their frequency may be different. This week, the lab of Dr. Jill Silverman at UC Davis and her colleagues, including Nicole Copping, Ada Adkahiri, and Stella Petkova, investigated three different inbred strains of mice and their response to drugs that cause seizures. They did this in order to understand the nature of the seizures and the gene-environment interactions on behaviors that are consequent to seizures. The strains are important. These strains are FBPNJ, C57BL, and C576NJ mice. You really won't have to remember the names past this podcast, but you do have to remember that these strains of mice are the most popular when molecular biologists design mutant mice with different genetic deletions and mutations. When scientists quote unquote make a mouse that say has fragile X, they have to start out with a background strain. They don't, in case you were wondering, go out and catch mice on the street and then create mutant mice from those street mice. The mice are purchased from facilities where they're born, tested and housed until they're used for science. In the first part of the study, the researchers wanted to look at the differences across these three strains on the response to different seizure-causing drugs. One is called PTZ, and the other is canic acid, or KA. 
PTZ works on the GABA receptor and KA works on the glutamate channel receptor. PTZ blocks cells from calming down, making them more excited, and KA or kinic acid gets them excited on its own. Both result in seizures. Also, since new evidence is suggesting that some behavior problems are seen in people after seizures, the scientists tested animals on some standard test batteries that are related to autism. Luckily for you, I got Nicole and Jill together to ask them some of the questions about the study. The first being why. In other words, what motivated you to do this study? So our motivation was twofold. One, it was to address this comorbidity between autism and seizures, which is about 50%. Um, And two, to address some of the issues that we have when trying to model autism, especially because it's a behaviorally defined disorder. And so in translational research, autism is generally modeled by some sort of genetically modified mouse or rat or other type of animal. And these, what we'll call them, are made on inbred background strains. Why is an inbred background strain, why is it so important? Because considering humans are so genetically diverse um, and we use inbred background strains to control for all these different parts of our research. So while inbred strains are essential in research for controlling different variables, they aren't completely relevant to how genetically diverse humans are. Given that a lot of times inbred strains can be cherry picked by researchers to look at specific phenotypes. Right. Exactly. So when we study autism from a basic science point of view, we use these mouse models. And when we know a gene is involved in autism, we can make a model that a mouse that has the gene knocked out. But sometimes these models, or not sometimes, always, usually the mouse are just made on one strain, an FEB, for example, or a B6J. And Nicole and some of the lab mates have been noticing that B6J and FEB, these two different strains, um, they're different on their own, just like certain ethnicities are different on their own, certain races have different on their own. And so we wanted to highlight the importance of what these genetic background strains could mean. And how seizure susceptibility looked in each of the background strains and how their behavior differed. Now that they told you about the why, let's go over the what. Now, in order to produce seizures, you wouldn't want to give just one walloping dose of PTZ or KA. That might kill the animal. What they did is called kindling, which is giving smaller doses each day and watching the animal's behavior. By the 10th day, they ended up getting seizures. The seizures actually got worse and more frequent each day they were given the drug. There were no seizures the first day, but they did get worse and worse after that. The PTZ caused more frequent and more severe seizures than the KA in two of the strains. PTZ actually caused this more severe type of seizures. But there was also one strain that didn't see really much seizure activity at all after either KA or PTZ. That was the C57-6J. Neither canic acid or PTZ really had much of an effect in that strain. You could call this strain seizure resistant. There was something protecting this strain from the seizures, but unfortunately not the behavioral consequences of the seizure-producing compounds. 
This C576J strain, which didn't really show much seizure activity, did show behavioral effects of the seizure-producing compounds. That means it has increased total activity in the open field. That's deemed hyperactivity and is common after seizures. And they also had learning and memory impairments using something called the novel recognition task. The seizure-producing drugs also had effects in the two other strains besides just seizures. Those other two strains that exhibited seizures, FBVNJ and C57BL6NJ, had significant behavioral deficits in cognitive and social behavioral domains after the seizures. This is in contrast to the strain that didn't show seizures. The one that didn't show seizures, the C57BL6J, they didn't show social behavioral deficits. As a note, the study did have a group that didn't get any seizure-producing drugs. So because they needed some way to compare the behaviors of the ones that did get the seizures to ones that didn't. In fact, the repeated low-dose treatment in every strain induced learning and memory deficits in what was known as the object recognition task, even if the drug didn't produce seizures. Now, when I talk about social recognition and tests of learning and memory, I want you to know what that means for animals and what they're being asked to do. So here are Jill and Nicole explaining what these behaviors are in animals. We use behavioral assays that measure some of the core symptoms of autism spectrum disorders, such as social behavior deficits, learning and memory deficits. And we always examine motor behavior for a few different reasons. One, because they're mice and their motor ability definitely affects the way that they can be social or their ability to uh, exhibit to us that they have intact learning and memory. But two, because motor is also a really important um, domain for autism and various disorders. So Nicole, can you tell, uh, tell us how we did social behavior and learning and memory? So to test for learning and memory, we use a novel object recognition assay. Uh, here we introduce an animal into a novel arena where there are two familiar objects. For 10 minutes, they're allowed to investigate, so they sniff them and look around them, and that's what we call general investigation. After that, we remove the mice, bring them back after an hour, and then one of the familiar objects is replaced with a novel object. Generally, animals that have normal cognitive abilities uh, investigate and explore the novel object more than the familiar object because they've already spent time investigating that familiar object. Our work here after recurrent seizures showed cognitive impairment by less time with the novel object compared to the familiar object. We also looked at the social behavior of the animals using two different assays. One is a classical three-chambered apparatus where there's three different chambers and the animal has the choice to spend time in the chamber with a novel mouse versus time in a chamber with a novel object. Almost all mice without any mutation or models of autism will prefer to be in a chamber with a novel mouse over nothing. And we use this test as a screen to see if we can, if the gene that we're mutating affects social behavior by maybe they don't exhibit that intact preference. And we also did a more sensitive social task, which is a direct diet interaction task. Here, 
We place two animals in the cage. They run around and investigate each other. We capture and observe, measure all sorts of behaviors, such as sniffing, anal genital region, nose to nose sniffing, and social behaviors that are typical to mice. This would be analogous to what you would think of as a typical social interaction between two people. And finally, to measure motor, we used a standard open field assay. So here, a mouse is again placed in a novel arena where their activity is measured by beam breaks as they move around the chamber. Uh, with this, we're able to collect data on di the total distance moved, horizontal activity, vertical activity, and center time. With our three different background strains and recurrent seizures, we saw general hyperactivity, but our motor responses varied by strain and by treatment. Now, I would say that the two strains that showed seizures and behavior problems should be used when looking at epilepsy and autism, but that may be an overreach for me. Instead, I asked Jill and Nicole how the results could be translated to findings in people. So we think this work reminds scientists and those consuming science research that they should be cautious of interpretations made off of one study and cautious of conclusions made using a single strain because environment is an important factor. So just to add to that, it's kind of like these mouse strains that we talk about, they're a little bit like breeds of dogs. A golden retriever has certain characteristics, a Rottweiler has certain characteristics. In people, someone of Asian ethnicity has uh, certain um, background genetics and certain cultural differences, the same as African American or white Caucasian people. It's just an important factor that these mice are, are very different, these strains are very different, and so uh, attributing all of their behavioral differences to the genetic mutation that's involved in them isn't necessarily the only variable of the study because the background genetics of these mice are important. It's kind of also like how girls with autism don't look like boys with autism. An autism gene on a B6 mice background strain autism doesn't look the same like. gene mutation on an FEB mouse. Right. Like a lot of times there's artifact due to the background strain that people are recording as observable deficits contributable to the gene. Right. And whereas now we recognize sex as a biological factor, and so we think it's like, well, of course the females don't look like the males, and it's very important in your basic research to not pull females and males together. What hasn't been as important or hasn't been raised to uh, the foreground enough is that um, what if this gene mutation was on a different background or... Uh, you haven't accounted for if you you haven't accounted for the fact that you only see this behavioral deficit when it's on one specific background. Right, and that also just bleeds into this basically high failure rate of moving any treatment for ASD from preclinical work to the clinic, because a lot of those times what you are seeing in research as a robust phenotype is really only seen on one strain or in a very small subset of. Um, of animals that yeah. doesn't reflect a whole population. And so when that treatment is then applied to a clinical population, it fails. Right. I mean, it just comes down to the fact that humans are incredibly genetically diverse with a wide amount of environmental factors uh, related to their parents and where they grew up and what 
things they were exposed to throughout life, whereas the mice are completely not. They are brother-sister mated, 99% genetically the same, and their environment is controlled for the second that they are conceived, born, and throughout their life. Finally, I asked them why animal models were important. In other words, what can animal models tell scientists that other models cannot? So animal models are essential tools in translational research. When looking at a disorder such as autism, it is a behaviorally defined disorder. So cells in a dish aren't going to replicate what we would see in a live behaving person or a live behaving animal. And so animal models fill in, kind of bridge the gap between cells in a dish and humans in that they are a total organism with multiple systems where you can see the effects of a genetic mutation across lifespan, across behavioral domains, and across development. And then that just gets to uh, a little bit, we said this before, that what animal model research that clinical studies cannot is uh, we cannot test uh, the consequences of a gene mutation in live, you know, across development in people. We have to use a model system to do it. We cannot test treatments for autism um, just by putting a treatment in people or just by putting it on cells in a dish. We need to look and see if the various treatments can have improvements in behavior in a model system. Again, just to emphasize that animal model research can, it's a perfectly controlled situation and it allows us to investigate all of these questions that are important for autism one at a time. Yeah, it, like animal models serve to test like safety and efficacy of different types of drugs and treatments at a much faster pace than you would ever be able to do, even if drugs were allowed in people. Yeah. But you, no one would want to put a drug like that in their child for the first time and hope it works. Right. I think that it was necessary to do it in an animal model because we wanted to look at how seizure susceptibility affects behavior in a model system and how having seizures affects behavior. It was good to do it in a model. And it's hard to look at the effect of seizures on different behavioral outputs in kids with um, autism because a lot of their actual behavioral outputs are on such different levels of measurement. Yeah. You know, like some have really high cognitive, some have lower cognitive. And so to compare the two and then looking at the effect of seizures, it's like hard to. Right. And in our, this study was able to carefully control the seizure and then carefully control the amount of time that had went by past seizures before we tested behavior. So we were able to know uh, for, for certain that it was the seizures effect on behavior as opposed to uh, numerous other factors that can't be controlled. All this means two things. Number one, animal models are needed to determine genetic interactions with environmental factors, be it seizures or a toxin or anything. And two, scientists need to be careful when they interpret studies using just one strain of mouse. Just because it induces seizures does mean that's it. There may be downstream effects which are important, not just for interpreting the animal model literature, for, but for a better understanding of disorders studied, including autism. Thank you for listening. Thank you for recognizing Epilepsy Awareness Month, and I will talk to you next week.